Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. This is your sneak peek for the week of January 17th. With a holiday on Monday, the court has a short week of arguments before, well, you know, taking another winter break. But before we get to our regular business, a couple of noteworthy things to talk about at the court. One thing that continues to develop are the measures that justices are taking to protect themselves uh, while conducting in-person arguments. Jordan, what have we learned? Right. Well, you're the one who is actually there, so I was going to ask you, but seems like there's been a interesting split on the court, right, with Gorsuch not wearing his mask and others taking different approaches, some sort of wearing them, and Sotomayor and then Breyer even retreating into their chambers for the arguments, right? Although, so let's break this down a little bit, right? So we think that Sotomayor uh, is hearing the arguments from her chambers, likely because, um, as is widely known, and we've mentioned on this podcast before, she, since childhood, has had diabetes, so she has a pre-existing condition. That was not the case for Breyer, though, although he does have a pre-existing condition of being super old. Um, What was up with Breyer? Right, well, and I had to do a double take when I was reading this notice from the court, because... We heard going into Tuesday's day of arguments, I think it was, that Breyer, too, was going to be hearing arguments in his chambers and said, okay, we thought, well, is that just because he's older? Is that because Gorsuch isn't wearing a mask? What is it? And so we find out after the arguments from the court that, according to them anyway, he had tested positive on a rapid test for COVID that morning on a rapid test, but apparently it was a false positive and that just out of an abundance of caution, he wound up hearing the arguments from his chambers. So I saw a briar positive and thought, well, this is it. I wonder, so one thing that I learned that I hadn't really known is that the justices, I guess, are taking these rapid tests before arguments, or at least some of them. So we've been critical of the justices when they don't wear masks. Does that change any of the way that we think about this, the fact that they are, you know, testing negative before each argument? I mean, my point anyway is that there's something weird going on if it's some people are doing it and some people aren't. We know that they're all vaccinated And so obviously it seems like that's close to not a big deal at all if everybody's healthy and there's even some space between them. But there's just something weird, even visually, about some justices doing it and some not. So that was my broader point, I think. But then you have Sotomayor, who's clearly the only one who's taking certain precautions. And I think there have been times where it's only been her. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that had been the case from um, October to December that she was the only justice wearing a mask inside the courtroom. Uh, But that changed uh, this week, actually. Yeah, so it's, you know, the Supreme Court's this public body. There aren't cameras, so we're relying on the few reporters like yourself who are allowed in and the great sketches that we get from the court artists like Art Lean. So... It's just an odd visual, especially against the backdrop of these vaccine cases themselves, which we'll talk about. Right, right. Right. So uh, let's talk about uh, the big news that came down on Thursday. Uh, Jordan, can you tell us about Babcock? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I managed to actually literally forget about that actual opinion we got 
in a case. Um, well, that was the case to refresh listeners' um, recollection. This was the case where the f- federal government told the justices that they shouldn't bother because it only affects, you know, some very specific people who qualify as both civilians and military and only for a period of about 20 years. Um, And so this case wasn't going to have a lot of effect. And the justices were like, gee, that sounds fabulous. Let's hear that. Uh, So Thursday morning, the justices issued that opinion. But of course, um, later on that afternoon, they issued their rulings in the OSHA and CMS mandates. Jordan, I guess you can tell us about that since you couldn't really tell us a lot about Babcock. Well, what happened is, Kimberly, you called it when we were talking about what was going to happen in these cases. You mentioned, which was, I think, pretty much where the smart money was after the arguments and maybe even before that the employer mandate was not going to succeed, but the CMS mandate was. And that's what wound up happening. One quick note, too, on the background that we didn't get to talk about, I think, since it happened, is that two of the lawyers arguing against the government rules themselves had also had to argue the cases remotely because they had tested positive one in each case so that was just another absurdity of the backdrop here that was the universe saying something i feel like (laughs) because it was the first time that any lawyers had had to kind of uh, take that backup measure of arguing remotely because they had tested positive and it happened in those vaccine mandate cases where they're talking about, you know, protections from getting COVID in the workplace. Right. Well, it was one in each case, right? It was the Ohio Solicitor General in the employer case and the Louisiana Solicitor General in the CMS case. So they split the difference, too, in uh, testing positive ahead of the argument. But as far as what actually happened in these cases, right, um, the court... In NFIB against OSHA, that was the large employer case. Uh, They ruled against the government there, and that was a 6-3 decision with the Republican appointees in the majority and the Democratic appointees in dissent. The CMS case, which was upheld in the government's favor, that one was a 5-4 with Kavanaugh and Roberts in the majority with the three Democratic appointees. That's the bottom line of what happened there as far as the result and who went there. So is what we thought was going to happen, I mean, is there anything that surprised you about how they got to that decision? I'm not sure it's surprising. um, But one thing I think we should note is that the court decided the OSHA mandate uh, based on this major questions doctrine, which is something that's um, a relatively new kind of doctrine to the Supreme Court, something that first appeared in the 1990s and has been a bit on a lull. But it seems like with these Trump appointees, it's going to become more robust. And basically, it says that when Congress wants to to confer really sweeping powers to agencies, it has to do so clearly. So this idea that Congress can't hide elephants in mouse holes. And that's significant, not just for the vaccine mandates, it will have implications, you know, long after the pandemic has subsided, um, because it will apply in every single administrative law case, cases that touch every aspect of American lives. And so I think a really early test is going to be um, an EPA case that the justices have scheduled for February, which tests the EPA's ability to 
regulate greenhouse gases in an effort to combat climate change. So um, we'll see how robustly the kind of conservative majority takes this doctrine and what the implications could be in the future. So for this case, though, the problem is that Congress through OSHA didn't, before the COVID pandemic happened, say OSHA is allowed to act when there's a COVID pandemic and so therefore it couldn't act? Is that what's going on? Right, right. And I think that that's an unfortunate part of this doctrine that it's getting kind of its time in the sun in this case where vaccine mandates um, that are, you know, trying to combat an emergency really don't fit comfortably with this idea that Congress can, you know, before these things happen, really foresee them. Like, why didn't Congress tell us that COVID was happening if it could do that? That would have been that would have been cool. Um, but yeah, I take your point. I will say, though, that that CMS mandate is not nothing. Um, it covered some like 10 million healthcare workers uh, who deal with particularly vulnerable patients. So uh, it's a good win for the government. And I think that the Supreme Court hasn't completely taken uh, workplace mandates off of the table. It seems like there's some room for OSHA to kind of act in a more narrow and um, more pointed way. But we'll see what they do next. Yeah, I feel like the employer mandate has gotten more attention because it covers more people, right? But mm-hmm. I mean, the CMS mandate, that was just a 5-4 decision. I was thinking about that a little bit in terms of Breyer, because if he's replaced by a Republican, a case like that maybe goes the other way, depending on how that goes. So even the CMS case wasn't a foregone conclusion, right? Right. And I guess you had asked if I was surprised about any of the cases. And I was a bit surprised about um, Justice Amy Coney Barrett joining the the other three dissenters in that CMS case. Um, she had asked some questions that to me indicated that she was maybe um, prepared to take a scalpel to them to the mandate there and at least uphold it in some respects. But, you know, I think it's a good reminder that she's a pretty new justice and, you know, we're still kind of learning uh, what's behind her argument questions. Is it something that's really animating her thoughts on the case or is it kind of more of a devil's advocate? So. All right. We can we can move off this for now. Well, Jordan, as I mentioned at the top, Monday is a holiday. So the justices will be uh, celebrating outside of the courtroom. But when they get back into the courtroom, they are going to have one of their favorite topics ever, of course, religion in Shirtliff versus Boston. So this involves a city program which allows private groups to fly their flags temporarily on a city flagpole. And so you can think of everything from Boston pride, Boston heritage, to even Peruvian culture. Uh, But the city did not allow this uh, religious group called Camp Constitution to fly its flag because it has a cross on it. So the lower court said that's fine uh, when Boston flies these flags. It's government speech and the government gets to say what it wants to say and doesn't have to be forced to say uh, things that it doesn't want to say. Now, this is a religion case, so we already know who's going to win. Sorry, city of Boston. Uh, But actually, I think it's worth noting that here, the ACLU is actually on the side of the camp constitution who wants to fly their flag. And they say, you know, this isn't government speech. Anybody who knows this program knows what Boston is trying to do is to allow private groups to say something, not the government. Um, So I think that's a pretty powerful ally. Not that they needed it. They were going to win anyway. But um, 
That's Charlotte versus Boston. Jordan, what else is we going to hear on Tuesday? So in the Kassir case, this is the latest appeal over Nazi-looted art. And the question is whether state or federal law controls when state law claims are brought in federal court under the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act. So what happened here was the Ninth Circuit ruled against the heirs, saying federal law applies, which calls for applying Spanish law. That's where the Pizarro painting at issue is on display in a Spanish museum. The heirs, the Casiers, want California law to apply, which would be more favorable to their claim, so the justices can clear up which law applies here. And then on Wednesday, we're kicking off with some campaign finance. Can't really what's happening in that one. Right. So in FEC versus Ted Cruz for Senate, uh, we are, of course, dealing with campaign finance. So in this case, uh, Senator Ted Cruz and his campaign are challenging limits on the repayment of personal loans by candidates to their campaigns. Here, Cruz lent his campaign $260,000 and didn't pay back the loans within the time period allotted. uh, And that was on purpose in hopes of triggering this litigation. So the provisions here say that candidates can't use post-election contributions to pay back personal loans in excess of $250,000. So any amount over that, here $10,000, can still be paid uh, post-election, but only with pre-election contributions, got me? Um, And only if they're done within 20 days of the election. Otherwise, that loan is considered a contribution and the candidate does not get that money back. So one of the questions here is standing and in particular, whether or not the Cruz campaign can really create this litigation by, you know, a self-inflicted harm. And the second question is, of course, on the merits, whether or not these limits violate the First Amendment. So this in and of itself is a narrow challenge. But our buddy Mitch McConnell urged the justices to strike down the entirety of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002. They say it is a, quote, constitutional train wreck that has enacted the most significant abridgment of freedoms of speech and association since the Civil War. So, of course, the court has struck down various provisions of this bipartisan reform. Uh, Think cases like Citizens United and the follow-on in McCutcheon. And McConnell is urging the justices to just strike it down once and for all. Seems unlikely to me, but, you know, yellow. Okay, Jordan, last case. What What are we talking about here in Concepcion? So this is the latest case involving the First Step Act. That's the 2018 criminal justice reform law that was signed by President Trump into law, passed on a bipartisan basis. So Concepcion pleaded guilty to possessing crack with intent to sell. He was sentenced to 19 years in 2008. And that timing is important and not great timing for him because just shortly after that in 2010, that's when the Fair Sentencing Act was passed. And that law somewhat leveled out the disparity in penalties between crack and powder cocaine. But that Fair Sentencing Act only applied going forward. Part of what the First Step Act did in 2018 was it made those provisions retroactive. So now you have thousands of people trying to get resentenced who are serving time under that previous harsher regime. But there's still lots of questions over how the First Step Act applies. And here the question is over whether judges doing these resentencings take account of intervening changes in facts and law like rehabilitation or changes in the sentencing guidelines. That's Concepcion. 
So it's a short week of uh, cases, but some pretty good ones, I'd say. Yeah. Um, so we are recording this on Friday, January 14th. Um, and that's important to note because this is the, well, theoretically, the last day that the Supreme Court can grant new cases to be heard this term without expediting briefing, um, which normally they don't do, but this term they seem to really enjoy. Uh, so potentially we could be seeing a handful of grants. I think... My count is that the justices have 11 unscheduled cases, so that's less than one a day for the two remaining um, argument sittings that they have uh, to fill out. So I suspect that we will get some grants, and those are some pretty notable ones, right, right, Jordan? That's right. What are we waiting on? Affirmative action is one of the biggest ones, right? Right. Affirmative action. There's one um, on the Indian Child Welfare Act. There's a handful of petitions related to that McGirt decision um, from a couple years ago. And I'm sure I'm missing missing other things, but um, yeah, we'll see what they do. Until then, you can follow along with the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On the Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.